0: Hello and welcome to the R.I. Science Podcast. On the 4th of July 2012, one of the longest-running mysteries in physics was finally clarified. The Atlas and CMS collaborations at CERN's Large Hadron Collider announced that they had produced and observed the elusive Higgs boson. This unstable elementary particle was theorised back in 1964 by six scientists. One of them was the particle's namesake, Peter Higgs. In this episode, physicist and former R.I. Christmas lecturer, Frank Close, explores the life of Peter Higgs, a Nobel Prize-winning scientist and the only person in history to have an existing single particle named after them. You can find a link to get Frank's book, Elusive, in the episode description. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 7th of July 2022. Now, over to the theatre. Thank
1: you. Thanks, good evening. Well, I thought uh, I'd start by going back just before the Big Bang where somebody somewhere said, let's fire up this Large Hadron Particle Collider and see what happens. Well, what happened was 1964, which was a year in which the idea of the Big Bang was first established. It was the same year that we came up with the idea that deep in the heart of the atomic nucleus, the basic seeds are quarks, which build protons and neutrons at the middle, with electrons whirling around the outside. And it was the same year that Peter Higgs had his great insight, which explains, we now know, why it is that all the stuff that emerged from the Big Bang, rather than just flitting around as some sort of amorphous goo, ended up making structures like atoms and molecules, the seeds of biology and life, Why it is that the sun burns slowly enough that five billion years managed to elapse so that evolution could take place and we could be here. Well, that's what we know now. But when he actually made this breakthrough, it was far from obvious what he had done. In fact, uh, one of his students came back from the summer vacation to find a note from Peter Higgs on his desk saying, this summer I have discovered something totally useless. And that is clearly what Higgs thought he had done at that time. What we now interpret it as is the following. The insight that mass, this property that basic particles have, doesn't just exist, but it comes about by the whole cosmos taking part. Now, I don't mean by this that it's the galaxies of stars out there that are somehow affecting things and giving them this property. It's much more basic than that. If you could remove all the stars, if you removed everything, so that there was nothing left, it turns out there's something you wouldn't be able to switch off. That you'd be left with some weird stuff, which we call the Higgs field. We know that it's there because we've proved it, and that's what I'm going to tell you about. But what it is, we still don't know. And if you want to discuss this at the end, that'd be great. But to give you a sort of sense of why it's important to us, that uh, draw an analogy that we're immersed in this Higgs field like fish in water. Fish need the water and we need the Higgs field. It's as similar as that. How do we know that it's really there? And what is it? Well, I suppose the simplest example of a field that we have... Met is like the magnetic field of the Earth, which spreads out into space. Uh, You can have magnets making little magnetic fields, electric fields, and so forth. In the jargon of relativity, the electromagnetic field is something that uh, is all around us. And if we give it a little bit of energy, we can make it burst into life by emitting electromagnetic radiation, such as light, which is what you're seeing me with at this moment. Now, in the world of quantum theory, light is not just a smooth, legato, electromagnetic wave, but it comes in a staccato burst of little particles. We call them photons. So photons are the bundles of light which are what you get when you excite the electromagnetic field. And by complete analogy, if you could somehow make waves in this background Higgs field, that would manifest itself as particles which we call Higgs bosons. The Higgs bosons are to the Higgs field like photons are to the electromagnetic field. There is a quantitative difference, though. I mean, if I just strike a match, I've produced millions and millions of photons just like that. To produce even one Higgs boson requires the complete technology of the Large hundred Collider at CERN, a 27-kilometre ring of magnets smashing protons, the seeds of hydrogen atoms, into each other. And the reason we have to do that is because Higgs bosons were very common in the first trillionth of a second when the Big Bang had just happened and the universe was incredibly hot. But the universe rapidly cooled. And as it cooled, the Higgs bosons sort of settled down, leaving this the smooth background Higgs field, which is what it is today. There's nowhere in the universe today, if that is a meaningful concept, that has the same amount of energy that the Big Bang had, except just outside Geneva, where we smash the protons together. And what we're effectively doing when they collide is making in a very small volume, for a brief moment, the sort of conditions of energy or heat, if you like, that the universe as a whole experienced in that first trillionth of a second. And it's under those conditions, if one's lucky, occasionally a Higgs boson might pop out and you can detect it. And that is indeed what happened in 2012. Um, The excitement was such that the former director generals of CERN were all there, turning around, taking the applause of the audience. Peter Higgs's idea in 1964, had uh, finally been confirmed. It's ironic to give you a sense of the passage of time. 2012 was 100 years after Rutherford first discovered the idea of the nuclear atom. And it's midway between those two times that Higgs had the idea, which today explains why there is a nuclear atom. It gives you a sense of the vast time scales that have been involved in this whole enterprise. So that gives you a clue to one of the two reasons that I call the book elusive. Higgs had the idea in 1964. It took a full 48 years before the boson was discovered to prove the idea was right. And why it took that long is one of the things that we can talk about. The other thing is that Higgs himself is elusive. Uh, Unlike most of us here, he hasn't yet joined the 21st century in that he doesn't use the internet at all. He doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't use email. Uh, the only way to contact him, uh, especially during the pandemic, was to leave a message on his home answer phone and wait for him to call me back to arrange a time that we could have a conversation, which we did regularly every week during that lockdown period, hopefully keeping each other sane. This is because he is a very quiet, modest person who doesn't like the limelight, as we'll see. In fact, the extent that the year after the boson was discovered and Higgs was awarded the Nobel Prize, the day that the prize was awarded, he disappeared. And he spent the day hiding to avoid the media, which made him literally elusive. And one of the shocks that I got while researching this was that just as I was about to finish the book, it occurred to me that I hadn't actually asked him how he felt about all of this. And how would he summarise it? And he said, to my surprise, it ruined my life. (laughs) Which is one of the questions I want to try to answer at the end of this, because just imagine what he has done. In 1964, he's written equations on a piece of paper, one of these miracles that somehow the mathematics knows about the universe 48 years before we do. He's proved right, he wins the Nobel Prize, his name will go down in history, and his life has been ruined. Well, we'll come to that. So let's start with who is Peter Higgs as the first tranche. Um, he was born in Newcastle in 1929, so he's now 93 years old. Contrary to uh, some media reports way back who kept describing him as Scottish, based on the fact that he's at the University of Edinburgh, he's actually one quarter Scottish, one of his grandparents was Scottish. The family, uh, however, had moved to Bristol by the time Uh, He uh, went to to high school, but his character, I think, was formed very early on. I mean, as a child, he was very sickly. He had eczema so bad that he had to have cardboard tubes wrapped around his uh, hands as a a baby to stop him scratching himself, that he had uh, asthma and bronchial pneumonia on three occasions before he was 11. These are the days before antibiotics and uh, his family thought that this was brought on by exercise. So not only did he not go to school at the age of five for for a year, but they didn't have him playing with children uh, uh, either. So he was a very lonely child, and uh, he read uh, and was taught at home initially. Um, By the age of 11, uh, he went to high school in Bristol, the Cotton School, which it turns out is the same school that Paul Dirac, perhaps one of the greatest theoretical physicists of the 20th century, had also been a student uh, 30 years before. Uh, And it turns out that they were both taught by the same physics teacher, Mr. Willis, um, Dirac, 30 years before Higgs. Um, And a review of Elusive in the literary review today had a wonderful title. It described this as Mr. Willis's second best student. And I thought, I wish I'd thought of that as a chapter title myself, but there we are. Um, his parents, uh, his father in particular, uh, didn't like the idea of Oxford or Cambridge. And uh, he sent, uh, well, Peter went to King's College London as an undergraduate. Um, and then on graduation, he started doing research, not in particle physics, uh, actually in molecular biology, uh, just down the corridor from the group where Rosalind Franklin uh, were about to discover the double helix structure of DNA, for which Crick and Watson, of course, uh, got the the Nobel Prize. So it was the interest in helical molecules at King's College, back in around 1951-2 time, that Higgs started his research. Uh, I would say he only wrote a dozen papers in the whole of his life, and only one of them was with anybody else, and that was a paper on helical molecules. Everything he did was totally on his own, which is also an example of his somewhat uh, elusive character. He uh, managed, after King's College, to start getting interested in general relativity, which, well, even 60 years later, to be fair, has not made a great deal of progress. He got out of that, and in 1960 uh, went to Edinburgh, where he has been ever since, and started doing work on particle physics. And the status of the world of particle physics in 1960, it was pretty much in a mess. Um, The three, apart from gravity, which we're not going to talk about anymore, the three basic forces, electromagnetic force, it was the one that was known and understood and had a wonderful theory to describe it called quantum electrodynamics. And the key thing about it is that it's got effectively an infinite range. There were two forces, however, that acted in and around the atomic nucleus, not immediately visible to us out here, but the strong force which holds the nucleus together, and then a force called the weak force that gives rise to a certain form of radioactivity. So these two short-range forces, um, and the electromagnetic force was the one that was well understood. quantum theory that forces are transmitted by little particles being exchanged. So the electromagnetic force, the photons, which are the bundles of electromagnetic radiation, exchanged between charged particles transmit the force. And the range of the force is inversely proportional to the mass of the particle. So an infinite range force arises from the masslessness of the photon. The strong and the weak force, which are very short range, therefore should have been transmitted by some very massive particles. Um, What they were, nobody knew. um, And what sort of theory you could build of it, uh, nobody had any idea at all. Meanwhile, by chance, um, Peter Higgs solved a problem which, at first sight, had nothing to do with this, but as we'll see, had an unexpected surprise to it. Um, in 1964, Higgs and five other people completely independently, I should just say, to be fair, they were all trying to solve a mathematical problem that was around at that time. What it is, we don't need to talk about it unless you want to know about it after. And they solved this. And in the course of solving it, they found that the mathematics implied that things like the photon could gain a mass which seems pretty useless because normally the photon is massless. So but it's a nice little bit of mathematical trickery. But it gave people the thought that, well, maybe this could be used to understand the mass of the particles that must be down there to transmit the strong force, for example, that holds the nucleus together. And that is what Peter Higgs then tried to do. But first, he did one further paper which singled him out from the pack. It's this, that the mathematics that they've been using made a sort of assumption that behind all of this stuff there was this weird field. And Higgs and Higgs alone pointed out that you could see whether this was just a mathematical trickery or whether nature really works this way by seeing if you could excite that field to produce what we now call Higgs bosons. He alone pointed out that physical consequence of this weird mathematical trickery. And that is why this Higgs boson is named after him and why it is that he has sort of been singled out in part historically. So that's the good news. Uh, The bad news was that uh, he tried to apply it to the strong force and got nowhere. Uh, In 1966... He went across to America and in the course of his time there uh, met the great theorist Stephen Weinberg. And it turned out that Weinberg also was trying to apply this novel idea to make a theory of the strong force, the one that holds the nucleus together, and was getting nowhere. Higgs, at this point, gave up. And I should say, for the rest of his career, only wrote one other paper which had nothing to do with this and made no impact. So Higgs had done this one thing in 1964, found a bit of a mathematical trick, had tried to apply it to the strong force, didn't work, and stopped. But luckily for him, in the meantime, he had also written a paper pointing out you could test it if these weird bosons could be found. End of his story, pretty well. The following year, Weinberg had one of these very unusual moments of inspiration. He was driving to work at MIT in his Red Camaro, When he suddenly had the insight, as he said it himself, that we've been applying the right idea but to the wrong problem, that they'd all been focused on the strong force that holds nucleus together, and suddenly Weinberg realized that all the things that were coming out of the mass could work for the weak force, the one that generates radioactivity. And he suggested that the weak force and the electromagnetic force could be subtly intertwined to make a single force, the massless photon of the electromagnetic force would be matched by massive particles called W and Z. And with that, you could make a theory. And key to that theory would be to use the mathematical trickery that Higgs and these others had invented or discovered. To make the W and bosons gain their mass? And that paper by Weinberg was ignored for four years, for a reason that will become clear in a moment, after which it has been now cited over 10,000 times as one of the greatest papers in theoretical physics, which and the reasons for that will become clear in a minute. but it also explains why Higgs, out of that group of six, became so well known because Weinberg made a mistake, and it's this. Some years ago, I managed to get hold of the original draft manuscript that Weinberg had written, that's his handwriting. And you'll see a little arrow down on the left-hand side, um, reference three at the end, P.W. Higgs, blah, 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 blah. That is because he had met Peter Higgs that previous summer, and they'd talked together, and that is how Weinberg had learned out about all of this. He wrote the paper, and before it went off, he then learnt that there were some other people that had also come up with this same idea. And you can see their names written in a very small writing. It says, Hagen, et al, Brandt, and Engler. And the arrow is a reminder to Weinberg to include them when the paper's finally done. And when the paper is finally done, there is the printed version. It's got Higgs's name at the front, and it's got these other people afterwards. It turns out historically that Brout and Englert wrote their paper and published it about a month before Higgs himself did his work. Nobody knew about uh, the other people's work, and the other people came later. But the first people to discover this trick were Brout and Englert in Belgium. Higgs came second. But because of Weinberg having them the other way around, people thought that Higgs was first and had priorities. That was the first piece of Higgs's luck. Why was it that nothing happened for four years and then suddenly everybody went mad? Well, the answer is because in 1971, uh, a young uh, graduate student in Utrecht, Herr Toft, uh, in his thesis discovered how to make the completely viable description of both electromagnetic and weak forces. And his supervisor, Teeny Veltman, on the right, uh, had been instrumental in putting this all together. And basically, this was the basic idea that he did. The electromagnetic force had been understood for, by this stage, nearly 30 years. Quantum electrodynamics with the massless photon. You could calculate things to accuracies of one part in a trillion remarkably well. So that theory had a great acronym, QED. It really works. And the photon being massless was key to it. What Atoft did was he started off to make the theory of the weak force and pretended for a moment that the W and Z bosons, the analogues of the photon, were also massless and showed that if that was the case, everything would work beautifully. But empirically, the W and Z are not massless. So so Toff then said, what if I add the Higgs trick to this to give them a mass, which he did and discovered wonderfully that everything still held together. So here he is a bit later in life giving a talk and you see he's describing the whole of his theory on the blackboard and the key additional piece to it that makes it all work, he's got Higgs on the right there. So Higgs's name is getting mentioned again, the other people not yet having been heard of. So Toft and Veltman uh, eventually got the Nobel Prize, because it, we now know today that this is indeed the, the theory that describes the electromagnetic and the weak force all united together. And the key ingredient to make it all work is this mass trick that Higgs and the others had discovered. That still doesn't really explain why it is that Higgs gets its prominence. An answer is because what happened the following year? Every two years uh, in particle physics, there is a big international conference that people come to. Um, and in 1972, it happened to be in Chicago. And the role of this conference series is such that uh, leading people review various areas of physics. And the analogy that I've drawn here is, let's say, the influence of what happens in this conference is very similar to, to Warren Buffett, Uh, making his remarks in the world of finance, what happens at these conferences determines by and large where people work the next immediate couple of years. And it happened that the discovery by Atoft and Veltman that you could make this beautiful theory was the big thing in that conference. And the session on that was organised by Ben Lee, who had also met Peter Higgs uh, back in 66 and knew all about this. all of the talks were really about what a Toft and Veltman had done, but as Peter Higgs described it, Ben Lee plastered my name on everything. That's Higgs being overly modest. In fact, if you actually read the papers at that conference, Higgs's name was being mentioned all the time with regards to this mass trick, though none of the other five people. So, this was how the theorists in the world were getting the impression that Higgs had done everything. For the experimentalists, that explosion began four years later in 1976. Um, three young theorists at CERN wrote a paper about the boson, which Higgs had, as I said, alone pointed out that would be the key proof, one way or the other, if nature read this, or whether it was just mathematical trickery. And they wrote this paper, they gave it the title, A Phenomenological Profile of the Higgs Boson. So even if the experimentalists only read the title, they were suddenly seeing Higgs boson. And this is the first that I can find written down where Higgs boson is sort of mentioned. In the references to this paper by Ellis Garden and Opelos again, reference six starts off, again, with the wrong order. You know, Higgs first, and then the other people. Uh, but it does mention the key thing which I've highlighted there his 1966 paper, which is unique to Higgs, which mentions the boson uh, and the ideas about it. The irony is that apart from one person who wrote a paper in 67, none of those six people ever did anything on this ever again. They'd ha- it was like, like a supernova, you know, suddenly this idea emerges in the sky and then it's gone. And other people pick it up develop it, run with it for 40 years. It's very, very strange. The paper that Ellis and Co had done, though I discovered, typifies how sceptical people were. I mean, we all talk about the Higgs boson today, and you would think that it's been agreed for 40, 50 years that this is how things are, but it was not like that at all. Um, John Ellis, just a few weeks ago, uh, was giving a talk uh, as we come this week to the 10th anniversary of the Boson's discovery at CERN. And uh, he was reminding us how skeptical we all were about the Higgs boson in 1975 when he and his pals wrote the paper. And on the screen there, what he's showing is a quote from the end of their paper. Um, the image you're looking at is an aerial view of the countryside around CERN in Geneva. The circle on there is the outline of where underground the Large Hadron Collider is. It's about the extent of the circle line in size. Um, but the paper that Ellis and Co. had written, uh, it was very long, it went through all of the ways that you might be able to detect and identify the Higgs boson if you could produce it. The problem was nobody had any idea of how massive this thing was. You didn't really know where to look. And at the end of the paper, uh, it was almost apologetic. It says, We do not want to encourage big experimental searches for the Higgs boson. But basically, if you happen to be doing these experiments, look out for this sort of thing. It wasn't a, a project that was being presented. It was a, if something happens to come along, this is what it will look like. It was probably not until 82 and 83 that the drive really began to take form. And that was the year when the W and the Z bosons, the things which up to this moment have been sort of theoretical, the carriers of the weak force, the massive things that gained their mass through this Higgs trickery, were discovered at CERN. And so now, something that has been theoretical, admittedly believed in, but nonetheless theoretical, you know are real things. And so you now have a new level of confidence that you can start on and develop thinking around. And the fact that they were discovered and their masses were measured, uh, remarkably heavy, looking back, about 80 or 90 times the mass of a proton. And before them, the heaviest known thing was only four times the mass of a proton. So these things were completely out of scale. Now that you knew that you were, they were there, you could do what we call Gedanken experiments, the sort of thing that Einstein used to do, thinking about, if I was travelling at the speed of light, what would happen? You know, we can't do that, but you could imagine you could and work out what would logically hold together. Similarly here, people were imagining, suppose I had a beam of W and Z bosons, what would happen when they bounce off each other and so on? And you could work through, using the theory that Toft and Veltman had developed, and you found under certain circumstances, you would get nonsense, things happening more than 100% in probability, for example, and things like that. Clearly, something was missing, and the thing that was missing was the Higgs boson. If you now added to the calculations the supposed presence of a Higgs boson, suddenly all the answers made sense. So that was good news that that was the first clear theoretical hint that perhaps there is something going on here. The bad news was that when you put the numbers in, you found that the Higgs boson mass was huge. 80 or 90 was the mass of the W and Z, which was already 20 times bigger than anything we've ever seen before. And now the possibility that the Higgs boson could be a 1,000. So at this moment, People thought, "Okay, it's out there. Maybe someday, let's get on with other things. And that was really the state in the 1980s. But um, in America, the plan was to try by brute force to design a huge accelerator called the Superconducting Super Collider, SSC, designed to be able to reach this sort of energy to produce the Higgs boson or whatever else was masquerading as it. Now, that was fine um, as long as you didn't decide precisely where to build the thing. All the American congressmen who thought it might come to their state were very positive. The moment it was finally decided to put it in Texas, everybody apart from the Texas congressman decided it wasn't such a good thing after all. Uh, and the SSC was beginning to get built and was abandoned. At that time, over here in Europe, the idea was to try and use smarts a bit and to build not a humongous thing like the SSC. The SSC, by the way, would have had a size like the M25. I mean, the the LHC is large, but it's nothing like that. So the idea was to build the Large Hadron Collider, which was going to be a European-wide venture. There were 15 member states of CERN at that time, which the UK was one. But we were a very significant contributor to that financially. And this was also a time when the British government was not exactly all that positive, if you like, about big science. And there was a real possibility that uh, the UK might withdraw from CERN and, and, and do other things. And if that happened, The future of CERN would be uh, a question, and the whole future of the subject, likewise. Um, But various things happened uh, that I narrate in the book, which I won't go through now, that indeed, we stayed in CERN, and the LHC construction then, well, planning for it, at least, because technologically, it was still far away. Um, But the technological challenges became clear. And among the various things that were done, were, well, one of the fortunate things was that the Minister of Science uh, around that time, just later on, was William Waldegrave, who both was very intellectually excited by science, and also his constituency was Bristol West, which of course is the town where Higgs had grown up uh, as a schoolboy. So there was a sort of natural interest there. And so Waldgrave was was very positive about these things intellectually. Um, the and so Higgs's name began to be known here in the UK as there is something going on and there's somebody from the UK that's really involved in this. So the idea then became to try to encourage Peter Higgs to help promote some of these ideas to the general public so that the excitement could could spread. Which the problem, and you see there are some photographs here uh, of him and the various geysers with the same equation every time on the blackboards. And if you're really good at reading backwards, the bottom left is through a mirror. But it's all the same thing. You get the feeling that, uh, well, so Higgs was being used. And I feel he became a totem for the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, The problem was that, as I said, Higgs is very shy and retiring, and although he is very good at lecturing to advanced students uh, in in research seminars and so forth, standing up in front of an audience and giving a popular talk is not the sort of thing that he would find easy at all. Uh, And the first attempts to to do that were uh, not exactly the greatest. So then uh, the idea developed, and that's how I sort of became involved, was rather than him standing up and doing something himself, how about uh, having him on stage being sort of like interviewed by somebody like myself to bring the story out? Uh, And that is how uh, I became involved, uh, well, in the late 2000s. And here's a couple of images. Um, And what you see here, I think, is that in a comfortable environment with somebody he knew, he's very relaxed and open, and they were very successful and really, when we began to get some of the excitement of what was really going on uh, to come out. So that was Higgs uh, on on stage. Um, Then, of course, Stephen Hawking got involved. um, And uh, he made a lot of publicity by making a bet that, according to him, uh, there was going to be no Higgs boson at all. And he bet $100 uh, with a physicist that that would be the case, a, a bet that he lost. Um, So you've got, on the one hand, Hawking making this bet and getting a lot of publicity for his ideas, uh, and Higgs, at the same time, is being used to build publicity for the LHC project. And this is where, perhaps, the problems began uh, with Higgs's mistrust of the media. I'm not quite sure how strongly to put it, but certainly discomfort. Uh, And so here is an example of something. uh, i just read it from the book. In September 2002, uh, Higgs had his first encounter with the media and how careful you have to be. Um, He unwisely made a remark, Stephen Hawking doesn't know as much about particle physics as he thinks he does, which not surprisingly ended up on the headlines. Uh, The background to this was that there had been um, something going on in the Edinburgh Festival And uh, it was thought it'd be a good idea, because Peter Higgs was there, a good idea to have Peter Higgs and a couple of other people from the Research Council uh, having a small dinner afterwards, and to invite the science correspondent of the Scotsman to be there. Uh, Now, one of the problems was that the science correspondent was also the transport correspondent, and he was really more transport than science. Anyway, so here we are. The wine flowed, the conversation became relaxed. Not everyone was happy however, for as Higgs recalled, all the so-called science correspondent was interested in was Stephen Hawking. He didn't give a damn about particle physics. Hawking, while unquestionably an outstanding physicist famed for his work on black holes and how quantum theory might affect them, was no expert in particle physics. His bet, with particle physicist Gordon Kane that there'd be no Higgs boson, had been widely publicised and inspired the journalist. Growing irritated, Higgs eventually said, listen, I think you should appreciate not everyone thinks all Stephen Hawking's pronouncements come from on high and carry absolute authority, adding that Stephen Hawking doesn't know as much about particle physics as he thinks he does. and As I said, the next morning, well, Higgs thought he was making this remark off the record. Um, First message when talking to the media, do not say things off the record that you don't want to end up on the record. Um, It was a headline in The Scotsman the next day The day after that, the London newspapers had picked it up and suddenly there it was, big controversy. On the other hand, ironically, Higgs's name was suddenly being mentioned in the same breath as Stephen Hawking, which perhaps, you know, every threat is an opportunity. So uh, the LHC uh, was now being built and it wasn't until 2008 that it got to the stage where it was completed to the point that it could now be turned on. Um, you don't turn it on by flicking it. There is a switch somewhere, but it's a bit more than that. Anyway, so this became known as Big Bang Day, um, and the idea was that the media, the science media f- from around the world, should all be invited, because in, this was an experiment that was now going to begin that was on the scale of the NASA moonshots. And... Uh, to have the media there as the machine is turned on and tested. Uh, you don't just turn it on and the particles go around. It takes at least a day checking it go through the first bit, the second bit, and so forth. will then complete a circuit and carry on. And then you put a second beam in to go the other way to see that these two things will go around. It, it was highly risky. So uh, there it was, September 2008. Um, the world's media were all there. Lynn Evans, the Welshman who was essentially the lead engineer on the LHC construction, and somebody whose credit in this story, I mean, probably you've never heard of him, but he, to my mind, uh, is uh, as important almost as anybody in this whole business. He told me that they later learned that one billion people were watching or listening to the various reports in real time uh, as they went through the process, starting at about 8 o'clock in the morning, doing the various bits and pieces along the way. Now, in the UK, um, the Radio 4 dedicated uh, the whole of the Today program that morning to this. Uh, Andrew Marr was across in Geneva uh, watching the turn on, reporting back. And so they had not Peter Higgs, but Stephen Hawking on, again saying there was going to be no Higgs boson. Maybe there'd be many black holes and so forth. But the real activity was their CERN. And uh, Lynn Evans had set up um, a little flashlight, effectively, so that the the protons, they start off in a a fire extinguisher-sized jug of hydrogen, about this big. Uh, There are enough protons in that jug to run the LHC for centuries, though, for safety reasons, they replace the jug every uh, couple of years. They then get extracted. They're, the atoms are ripped apart so that you've got now the protons, which are accelerated the first gear, and a whole series of accelerations moving up through the gears go uh, until they're transported across the LHC, which is about five miles away from where all this starts, through a whole series of, of accelerators, to be injected for the first time. And that worked, and gradually it went all the way around. And so now came the first big test. I mean, you've got the car, you've bought the car, you know the engine turns on, but will it actually start when you press the, the pedal? Roughly speaking, was what this was about. And so Evans had set up two flashlights, because the beam will go around 11,000 times a second, and you're not going to see two lights go that that fast. So he set up two lights, one to show that the beam had arrived, and then a second one that would come on indicating that the thing had worked. And he did a countdown the first time, and nothing happened. So as he counts down, and he hesitates when he gets to two seconds to go, and laughs, wondering, are we going to have a problem again? As I say in the book, have you ever been in an elevator which the doors didn't open? And how long does it take before you realise the doors aren't opening? Anyway, so... It worked. (laughs) And as you can imagine, I mean, the the possibility for that brief moment that 10 years of building, 30 years of technological design work and so forth was going to come to nothing for a moment was a real possibility. But thankfully, it wasn't like that. So the media reported it in their own styles. World survives Big Bang. The sun, end of the world, due in nine days. Well, they were wrong there. so, uh, so these detectors are vast. The experimental collaborations themselves are vast. Uh, there are, I c- calculated that among the various experiments at the LHC, including the engineers and the technical staff and the scientists, over 10,000 people around the world uh, are involved. It's, that scale, it's a world venture that happens to be taking place at CERN. So it began in 2008 and gradually you don't get the answer immediately like that. You, you build up information and you're looking to see, is this a real signal or is it just something in the background noise? And it takes a long time before things become clear as to whether this is real or not. And by 2012, it was becoming clear that things were beginning to look sort of intriguing. Um, but nobody anticipated that it would be a real clear, answer one way or the other uh, until probably later that year. Now, I had my first interaction with Higgs uh, on stage um, earlier in 2012, before the boson uh, was discovered, and that was the first time that I had ever interviewed somebody on stage, and Jim Nocte happened to be at the meeting, and I asked him Uh, what's it like to interview somebody? And he said, oh, it's easy. I thought, well, it might be easy for you. But then I said to him, if you were interviewing Higgs at this moment, what would you be asking him? And he said, "Uh, well, I contextualise it. So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, is all of this hype about the Higgs boson uh, something that the scientists or the media have created, or would its discovery, if that happens, really be a seminal moment in human culture? And I thought, well, it would be a seminal moment in human culture. And that is the thing I now have to try to understand to bring out why. Uh, And so that's how it all began. Uh, A month or two later, um, Peter Higgs and I were at a summer school uh, in Sicily. um, And he was expecting to come back on the 2nd of July to go to Edinburgh. When, Well, a phone call came uh, on the 30th of June, I think it was, to say basically that there's going to be an announcement made at CERN on the 4th of July, and you might be disappointed if you aren't there. Um, Now, I should say at this point that that wasn't being totally enigmatic, that there are two big experiments who were independently uh, doing their work. And within those experiments, There's lots of different subgroups, so there's like a needs-to-know basis. But there's a a clear firewall between them. The only person who knew the full story was the Director General of CERN, to whom the individual experimental leaders were reporting uh, the the, the results. But apart from that, nobody really knew uh, what the full thing was going to be. But any event, uh, Peter redid his travel plans. he didn't have any Swiss francs with him. His travel insurance happened to end on the 2nd of July. Lots of things had to be sorted. There was a picture that was taken of him and me at Palermo Airport, which we put out on, on Twitter with a rather misleading hint to it, though it was t- it was logically correct. It was something along the lines of uh, uh, Peter Higgs and myself, um, I'm going to England via Rome and Peter to CERN, full stop, so that any media thought that he was going via Rome as well, but in fact, he was going by, via Milan. So if any paparazzi turned up at Geneva airports, they were waiting for the wrong plane. And at least that worked, but that was probably the last day of quiet in the rest of his life. Um, the 3rd to 4th of July, it was quite clear to all the scientists that something big was going to happen, but nobody yet quite knew for sure. And it was like a... Well, waiting for a rock concert, that people were camping basically overnight. It was first come, first served. Apart from a a very small select group of invitees, like the heads of the experiments, the former director generals all being invited. As somebody said, you don't invite all the former director generals if the experiments are going to say, we haven't found anything. But there you are. So uh, you can even see, I think, in the top picture, somebody just still asleep in their sleeping bag while everybody else is getting ready to go into the hall, which they did. Uh, Peter Higgs, meanwhile, was having a quiet breakfast with Stephanie Hills, who was the UK liaison officer. Stephanie had only been working at CERN for three days at this point, <laughs> and she said, I didn't even know where the toilets were. Anyway, so uh, the, uh, the announcement was made, and uh, with great excitement, there are the former DGs all turning around when it's clear that the Higgs boson has indeed been discovered, um, and this was all shown on the world's media in real time, it was hugely emotional. Because, I mean, Jim knocked his question then came back to me. Uh, At that moment, or at least up to that moment, for half a century, we had been increasingly sure that this is the way that nature works. But at that moment, we knew that nature does work this way, and that's something that will be known forever. It was a very profound sensation, and again, I think I and many of us had this weird feeling, how is it you can scribble equations on a piece of paper and they know about nature before we do? It is very, very deep. So then there was going to be, immediately after this, um, a uh, meeting of the world's science media, a press conference, which was in another room just 20 metres away. Uh, But getting Higgs from the auditorium where the announcements had been across this room turned out to be a major venture and as somebody described it, Kardashian-level paparazzi were crowding him at every turn. Uh, And Stephanie Hills and Jane McKenzie, who were accompanying him there, said it was very frightening. They said, uh, you know, these media, they're very good. They stand in front of you, and they, they walk backwards at the same speed you're walking. But all the time, and they said, I for the first time understood what it must have been like for Princess Diana feeling hounded all the while. And Higgs himself certainly felt very uncomfortable by it. Now, I got a very minor sense of this uh, a month later when at the Edinburgh Festival, again, I interviewed Peter Higgs for the first time after the boson discovery had been confirmed. Um, But I then took a photograph uh, of, there were two groups of people taking photographs who, they did their pictures, they were removed, and another group came in. So this is very, very small scale, but it was something that I hadn't really seen before. And I thought, I'm glad that I'm not having to suffer this all the time as he by then was. Now, there's a lot of speculation there and then that he would get the Nobel Prize that year, um, which he knew he wouldn't because it was already too late. But he said to me, some of the media reaction anticipating that gave him a clue as to what would be happening probably the following year uh, if and when that happened. And by the following year, uh, the Nobel Prize is awarded it is awarded to the recipients in December, but the announcement takes place in October. And everybody said, no. Higgs is going to get it. The only question was, who's he going to share it with? Um, so uh, we come to Nobel Decision Day, and this is the origin of the other reason for elusive in this, and I've written here. They seek him here, they seek him there. Those Swedes, they seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven, is he in hell, that damned elusive Pimpernel? And this is because Higgs did his famous disappearing act. So he went off to his favourite uh, seafood restaurant in Leith um, and he had lunch there. That's always, I said, no phone, no communications. He knew nothing what was going on, and equally well, the Swedish Academy had no means of contacting him. It's traditional to contact uh, the winners and alert them before the announcement is made. And being unable to find Higgs they uh, held up for half an hour before deciding to go ahead anyway and the announcement was made and everybody in the world with the exception of peter higgs uh, knew who had won the nobel prize that year um, at about three o'clock he was walking along Harriet row heading for his flat in the next street when a car pulled up near the queen street gardens a lady in her 60s, the widow of a high court judge, got out, came across the road in a very excited state to say, my daughter phoned from London to tell me about the award. And Higgs said, what award? So that's how he learnt that he had got it. (laughs) Um, So the following uh, uh, week, uh, I was invited up to Edinburgh to give a popular talk in the university about the the Higgs boson, what it was and so forth. And so uh, I started it with... uh, Two slides. The tools needed to find the elusive Higgs boson in 2012, and the tools needed to find the elusive Higgs in October 2013. So uh, anyway, he shared the Nobel Prize with Francois Englert. Um, Brout and Englert, as I said, had actually discovered this mass mechanism a month before Higgs. Robert Brout, sadly, had died uh, a year or so beforehand. So he was no longer uh, able to receive the prize because they're not awarded posthumously. And a maximum of three people can share the award. And, that, uh, and I think the Nobel decision to only award it to these two was actually a very profound way of recognising that had Robert Brout survived, he would have been there. And so, in a a rather nice way, his presence was sort of there in absentia. And so uh, I end by just coming to uh, what I said. Higgs said, it ruined my life. And uh, I asked him to explain that. And he told me quite eloquently about how much the media had just overrun him and everybody wanted a piece of this, and the whole idea that the Large Hadron Collider, all 10 billion euros worth of it, had been designed to discover the Higgs boson. And suppose it hadn't been there, you know. It's not his fault, but what the pressure would have been. Um, and he said, my relatively peaceful existence was ending. I don't enjoy this sort of publicity. My style is to work in isolation and occasionally have a bright idea. So that's elusive. Thank you. Just a quick question. Um, at the beginning of the talk, you mentioned about um, that the so a Big Bang, the only place which have sufficient energy to create a Higgs boson would be in the LHC. But presumably, naturally, there would be other places like active galactic nuclei, or colliding black holes or something, which would get to that same energy level. Would, would that have consequences? Would, would you get Higgs beaming out of those type of right. um, events? I'm not an, enough of an expert on astrophysics to be sure whether there actually are any places in the universe today at that extreme of temperature. But if there are, then there would be Higgs bosons bubbling in and out of the situation there. But the one time I said that we know for sure the universe had that temperature was, it was about the first trillionth of a second. And so that is what we're recreating in the experiment to see what the the physics was at that epoch.
0: Yeah, this may be a related question then, So I was going to ask you how the photon avoided the grip of the Ah, Higgs field.
1: that's actually a very interesting thing. The... um, I said, you know, photons don't gain mass, but that's actually not quite true. There are circumstances Uh, like superconductivity, um, where... Well, in superconductivity, the magnetic field doesn't penetrate into the superconductor. And so the magnetic field, instead of being infinite range within a superconductor, is only short range. And so because it's short range, the photon appears to have gained a mass inside a superconductor. So actually, this is beginning to start giving a a lead into your question, so to show that I haven't totally ducked out of it. The phenomenon its called the Meissner effect. The phenomenon of superconductivity was known. There were two Russians way back, Ginsburg and Landau, who had made a a phenomenological theory of that in which the photon effectively has a mass. A friend of Peter Higgs from his days at King's College, a man called Michael Fisher, um, he was the best friend that Peter Higgs ever had, um, became a theorist in condensed matter physics, and he and Peter maintained contact for the whole of their professional lives, even after Fisher moved to America. And it was in part because of that that Peter Higgs was aware of these things in superconductivity. Um, And so the idea that photons could gain a mass was sort of there, but in other areas. Um, but the question that you pose um, is the reason, I will say, that I said that there were two people shared the Nobel Prize, and there was a third slot available. And I, at the time, was saying that I thought that Tom Kibble should share that spot, because among the, the six people who independently had the idea in 64, Tom Kibble at Imperial College was one of them. But in 1967, he wrote, which I think was perhaps the most significant paper of that epoch, which was he showed how to make this thing work in the real world to keep the photon massless while allowing these other particles to become massive. So I mean, people sort of jokingly say, Peter Higgs showed how to give masses to things, but Tom Kibble showed how to keep the photon massless. And that was very important. But sadly, of course, uh, he didn't share in that. So I, I hope that's given some entree uh, in, into the answer.
0: We didn't get the audio from this next question, so I'll read it out for you. The person asked, We had about 48 years from Higgs's theoretical discovery of the Higgs boson to its actual discovery in CERN. Is there a similar theoretical basis for weak interacting particles or dark matter that gives hope that CERN might have another use in 40 years to discover another range of particles? Wow. Uh, (laughs) Well, I end the
1: book by sort of looking at the future. And I say that there's a major difference between what has happened in this last several decades and where we are now, that um, since about 1982, when that 1,000 GeV figure came out of the equations, we have known how far we have to go to either find the boson or discover that there's something fundamentally wrong. So we knew it was going to be a long journey, but we knew exactly where we had to get to. Now, today, we know empirically that there's some extra stuff out there called dark matter, which you sort of alluded to. This is something that the astronomers have told us because the way that galaxies interact with each other gravitationally shows us much more gravitational tug going on than we can explain given what we can see in anything electromagnetic, radio waves, x-rays, the whole lot. And this stuff we call dark because it doesn't shine. We infer it must be there because of its gravitational tug. There are no particles in this whole structure that the Higgs boson has finally put the capstone to with the properties required to be these dark particles. What they are, we don't know. Um, but if they are within the range of the Large Hadron Collider to find, they will eventually be detected. But it's possible that they are so massive, they're way beyond anything that we can reach. At the moment, we just don't know. It's all one of these things. Nature knows the answers. We know how far we can get, and any answers that there are within that range we will find, but beyond that, we can't. Not at least directly. So, short answer: I don't know. But sociologically, I must say that if it was the case that I knew it was going to be 48 years before we were going to make the discovery, then if I was a young person, would I be wanting to go into this? I, I really, I, I really don't know. Um, I shouldn't be saying this, but <laughs> with something like the Higgs boson, where you know
0: you get the media storm of the CERN Collider costing billions to find this particle that you can't even see. How would you kind of present the communication of the significance of that to somebody who doesn't really care, thinks that they don't care?
1: Are they somebody who would be prepared to buy a copy of my book and read the answer inside it? (laughs) (laughs) But there's there's one thing, actually, that you you asked, which I want to emphasise. The LHC was not built to discover the Higgs boson. I mean, the Higgs boson was one of the discoveries, and unless there's something really remarkable like the discovery of dark matter, it will be one of the great discoveries of it. I mean, I think in the course of particle physics and uh, atomic physics, this is comparable in my mind to Rutherford's discovery of the nuclear atom a century ago. Um, But it's one of the things that worried Peter Higgs very much because in the conversations that we had, he said that he was very disturbed that he felt that the, the Higgs boson had been oversold. And if people really thought that the Higgs boson was the sole reason for the LHC, well, they've discovered it, so they can turn it off. Um, and, and it's not. It, it is a very special thing. But uh, basically, the LHC is a machine that is able to study the universe, the, the physical universe, as it was in a trillionth of a second. And whatever there was then, we will be able to discern. and. Increase our understanding of how it is that we've got from there to here. And I think one of the things that I just threw as I went through that Higgs's mechanism we now know is the reason why W bosons have a mass. Why do you care about that? Because that is what makes the weak force very feeble. And when the sun burns, the protons in the sun coming together to build up helium and radiate energy as sunlight which thankfully gets here because photons can travel all the way across here. But that force that makes that step from the protons to helium is the weak force. And if the W boson was massless, that would have burnt up within a year or so. It's because the W boson has a mass, thanks to this, that the sun is burning slowly and five billion years have elapsed, giving the time for evolution to happen. So these things may seem arcane, but it turns out they are talking about the universe that we are part
0: of. Well, I'm sold on by your work. And I must bid you a farewell. Can we give a massive round of applause to our lecture tonight? It's a That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and a review to let us know what you thought, and to help other people discover the podcast. If you check out the episode description, you'll find links to get Frank's book, Elusive, and you can watch his Christmas lectures series, The Cosmic Onion. And if you want more like this, head to rigb.org to book tickets for our upcoming talks and live streams from more amazing speakers.